Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi, it's David Knowles, the host of Ukraine The Latest. Just a quick note from me. At the time of recording, here in the London newsroom, we are aware, of course, of the news uh, about Queen Elizabeth's health. We don't discuss it in the podcast, as you will hear, but we just wanted you to know that we'll do the very best we can, depending on whatever happens over the next days and weeks, to bring you the latest news from Ukraine. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, and we have a fascinating interview with Vladislav Haraskovich, the first ever Ukrainian skeleton racer, who talks about how the war has impacted sport in Ukraine, and his own life. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 8th of September, day 197. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dom Nichols and Vladislav Heraskovich. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been a, a, a confusing day, but reports seem to be backed up with with um, well, we've been able to verify a number of a number of the reports that we have received. And so there were two areas of advance from uh, from Ukraine. Firstly, in the south, in the Kherson area, um, pushing down from the Mikolaev lines or northeast running from Mikolaev down towards Kherson. There's a, there's four, the four routes there directly towards Kherson, around the coast of Kherson, a little bit further to the east down the Inulets River and a little bit further east again. Now, recently, there's been a bit of a bulge from the Inulets River push. That has been seemingly the the, uh, the most uh, successful rate of advance there. However, it now looks like that has been joined by a fairly successful push uh, further west, so the, the the most westerly route following the road that goes along the along the coast. They do seem to be making quite significant gains there. It's coming at high cost. There was a very interesting report in the Washington Post yesterday talking to soldiers in hospitals nearby who had been uh, injured in that fight. They talk of of tactical successes but also tactical um, setbacks which which we can we can uh, expect and i think that gives credence to those reports to be quite honest um but it does look like they are they are making gains significant gains i think it's fair to say but at but at high cost now elsewhere the kharkiv area this has been the focus in the last sort of 48 hours really a real a real push there somewhat unexpected partly because of the media blackout the the um uh, correct imposition of a media blackout i i would suggest as much as i'd like to know what's going on i think i think the preservation of operational security there is is more important uh quite frankly right now so we haven't got very firm ideas of what's happening however 
the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank that are that are uh, incredible, well worth following. They say that um, Ukraine's advanced at least 20 kilometers uh, in that area. So the area to the north of Izium, the road coming down from, from Russia to the east of Kharkiv, down towards Izium and into the Donbass. They're saying Ukraine's advanced about 20 kilometers uh, into um, into Russian-held territory there towards the town of Kupiansk. And they say that Ukraine's recaptured 400 square kilometers uh, over the 6th and 7th of September. I mean, that is quite a, a significant chunk of real estate. Now, whether or not they are continuing to push on or whether they are going firm, holding their positions, resupply, we're, we're not sure. But that that is, um, like I say, a credible source, the ISW. Russian sources on Telegram, they're saying that the, the thrust was led with a a force of 15 tanks and massed Ukrainian air defence, which overwhelmed the ability for Russian aviation, their, their, uh, principally their helicopters, battlefield helicopters, to, to stop that advance. But a, but a 15-tank thrust, a, a punch into that area, uh, seems to be what's caused that, that, that huge bulge there. Russian sources are also saying that, that Ukraine's advancing on the highways to uh, southeast towards Izium and east to, towards Kupiansk uh, and are saying that there are Ukrainian sabotage and reconnaissance groups in the area. That, that I'm not, not sure about. But the, the rate of advance, the areas that, the, and direction of, of advance do seem to be correlating across a number of different sources, both, both Russian Telegram, which, as we've talked about in recent days, in some areas can be very reliable, but also backed up by other credible sources such as the, the ISW. There's only one other bit of bit of news I need to bring you, and that is that uh, today in Ramstein in Germany, the Ramstein Air Base, US Air Base in, in Germany, is the, the fifth of the, the Ramstein series of uh, conferences to uh, provide military aid for Ukraine. Um, there's images of uh, US Secretary of State, uh, sorry, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, uh, he's 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 opened the opened the conference there. We've seen pictures of the British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace meeting Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's Defence Minister, and we are told there are over fifty participants. That's similar number to to the last the the last meeting, not not called the Ramstein series of meetings, but the sort of British led effort that um, that I went to a couple of weeks ago in Copenhagen. So fifty odd fifty plus participants. And Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, has said that the already pledged, so the U.S. are going to provide an extra $600 million in aid for Ukraine. So there will be more to say on that um, tomorrow, I'm sure, as we as we see, as we get some results through the day. But that, that's happening right now. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the update. Thank you very much, Dom. Just one question for you um, before we go to our guest. Um, having watched the, this Ukrainian counterattack, this counteroffensive in the south and in the north, um, do you have much of a sense of what the objectives are? Uh, and and also, now we're sort of several days in. Um, could you paint a picture t- for for our listeners of? You know, do you do you think it's broadly succeeding? How I mean, you mentioned earlier that there were some examples of tactical setbacks. Um, what's your sort of broad brush summation of what's happening? Yeah, I've been racking my brains on this one. It is it is odd. We we thought that Ukraine would were not able to muster the the combat power for significant advances on on more than one axis. Now, I mean these are these are limited gains. We have to have to stress that. However, the speed of advance is is quite striking. Um but they are limited when you look at literally the big the big picture. Look at the look at the map. Um they are more more advances than they've done in in many many months so it it is notable but we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here however it has come as a surprise that, that these these operations were able to take place now 
Does that mean that the Russian forces, or probably in the north around the Kharkiv area, the um, the Russian separatist, so-called sort of Luhansk um, People's Republic um, forces, just just are not very good or not very well equi- equipped, such that a, a Ukraine thrust of let's say fifteen tanks w- were able to get through? But there's probably a bit of that. But also, I just wonder if if the recent activity with the uh, long-range precision fires that have been donated, the very long-range, very precise artillery and rocket rocket systems that have denied Russia the ability to f- fire back in many ways. It's also uh, destroyed command and control posts and radar sites and all the rest of it. So I just wonder if if we're seeing here a real uh, model of of precision being able to overcome mass. Um, quite what that means for for warfare is a is a, an open question one we sh- we should return to but i think it's very interesting that a numerically inferior force ukraine through the precise application of extreme violence has been able to shape the battlefield such that then with a, a combined arms push combined arms being infantry and, and armor and and uh, engineers and and signalers and, and all the rest of it, artillery and so on and so forth um is able to make these these quite quite significant games uh, and by significant i mean the rate of advance into not so much the, the the real estate taken although as i say 400 square kilometers is, is a big old chunk so so what what does that mean and are they able to to keep it going now if these are two um coordinated but but separate thrusts i.e. If, if ukraine wants to continue pushing on both of these in kherson and kharkiv and they are successful uh, what does that mean because of course ukraine its intention is to take back every inch of of its territory from from russia um, but where's the priority now you could argue the priority is the south because the threat to odessa needs to be removed. Um, and also the more Ukraine can threaten Crimea, either directly or by cutting off the water, uh, another, another, another sort of um, effect there, that, that arguably is, is much more operationally significant for Russia. However, look at the north, the Donbass, Putin's changed his mind a few times, but the the last time he said he said anything on what his objectives are, he said it was to liberate the Donbass. So he has to take. They, they do. Russia does control the Luhansk Oblast, but the the Donetsk Oblast, further to the south, is only about fifty fifty five percent in Russian control at the moment. So Putin still has a, a very long way to go to control the Donbass, and you know, in his words, liberate it. So arguably. Pushing in the north might be might be the priority for Ukraine because that absolutely that directly stymies one of his stated stated objectives. So to be perfectly honest, I, I don't I don't know yet. I've not I've not yet come to a decision on on which one would be more beneficial if they had to choose, which would be more beneficial for Ukraine to either keep pushing in the south or in the or in the north. Obviously, you want want to do both and want to do both eventually. But if they have to sequence it, I don't know which one would be um, would be offer the greatest military advantage at the moment. I mean, these are, there's vast distances between the two, so it's not as if it would be a very quick manoeuvre for, for Ukraine to move its reserves to, from one area to the other and back again, or, or see, see which, one's, which one's doing better this week and, and move accordingly, um, So because the distances are vast, even though obviously Ukraine are working on what we call interior lines of communication, so they own the real estate that they're that they're travelling over, um, and so it's quicker for them to move than necessarily is for for Russia to to swing its uh, swing her, uh, her reserves around. But if it has to be sequenced, then there are 
very good reasons for either of those to be the the priority. And uh, I'm, I'm not just going to sort of pin the tail on the donkey and, and claim one one should be over the other because I think there's my my judgment is still out on that, and and, and we will continue to discuss both. I'm sure over the next few weeks. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Dom. It's uh, our great pleasure to invite our guest onto this podcast, uh, Vladislav Haraskovich. Uh, Vladislav, uh, thank you very much for talking to us. We're going to get a little bit of a different perspective from you today. You are, uh, well, in, in a minute, I'll ask you to, to tell us all about yourself, really, but you're Ukraine's first ever skeleton racer, so the skeleton in the Winter Olympics. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? How, how did you get into skeleton and what was your life in Ukraine like before the conflict? Uh, hello, uh, it's nice to see you all here. Uh, so, I'm Vladislav Hiroskevich, uh, first Ukrainian skeleton athlete, uh, two-time Olympian already. Uh, so, before uh, full invasion, it was uh, live. So, so, we had goals uh, in the sport, so we want medals, uh, we want to make Ukraine proud, and uh, we want to promote our country as best way as possible. So uh, when full invasion starts, our life changes. Our goal is also change. Uh, so today, our main goal, as all Ukrainians' goal, is uh, one of Ukraine in this war and the peaceful sky, uh, and uh, of course uh, peace and uh, normal environment for our people. So it's today our main goal. And uh, since already charity foundation we work as a volunteers uh, try to provide help to our people try to provide help for our soldiers so uh, also trying to push uh, uh, suspension of russian and russian atlas national sports arena and uh, many many other things to help ukraine in this uh, war before the invasion started at the beijing winter olympics you held up a no war in ukraine banner uh, to protest what turned out to be the impending Russian invasion. Um, what was the reaction from people around you uh, when you did that? And, and also the other athletes, how did they react? Reaction was different. And uh, at that time, when we do it, uh, many, many people, they don't understand why we do it. So uh, news, world news, uh, doesn't like really screaming about war. They was uh, pretty like, it was uh, not first uh, news in in the world so like it was like mm, everybody like don't understand why i do it but it changed in nine days when war starts everybody changed their mind and then they understand uh, why i do it and uh, how how important it, it was so uh, another part like reaction was good uh, whole world supports us and i got huge amount like of messages uh, i think thousands like in instagram in in everywhere and the news, uh, a lot of uh, interviews and uh, where I talk about my country and uh, a lot of support from all over the world, from Asia, from Europe, from USA, from Canada, from like different, from Australia. Uh, yeah, respect and uh, treat us, but uh, yeah, so I don't need to even say what, what kind of country it is. Earlier, you, you mentioned the, the charitable foundation you founded. Um, can you tell us about your experience um, giving out aid on the front lines? What was it like for you to do that in the, in the first few months? Can you tell us about your experience? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, we started doing it uh, in marriage. So first few weeks, I uh, tried to 
talk about Ukraine, so I have a lot of contacts of old media and try to Ukraine talk about situation what we got and after uh, this media boom was a little bit uh, lighter so we try uh, to create and work as volunteers at the same time my friends my colleagues they work as volunteers in key uh, but work one by one is like uh, it's it's pretty hard and we organize and work as charity foundation so we uh, main idea was to work uh, more effective and we start to work as a charity foundation. Uh, it's called Hiroskevich Charity Foundation. So uh, first, uh, we try to provide help for our people who got in difficult situation. It was Chernigiv, it was Kiev district, uh, Kiev region. And uh, we was in Mykolaiv and was like nearly shellings. It, it was, we need to do it. Uh, we got a lot of support from our sports community and uh, especially from USA Luch community. Uh, and we got a lot of tactical gloves, tactical shoes, radio stations, drones, some medical. Uh, so we give it to people who need it in the front lines. Uh, we try to work uh, with people from uh, Kharkiv area, and we was in Kharkiv area, and uh, also provide uh, support, like medical support for them. Uh, it's experience uh, it's pretty scary uh, it's uh, all all our defenders are heroes because uh, what they see like it's uh, it's nightmares it's really nightmares and uh, it's hard to imagine if you're not there but uh, it's really uh, really scary another story what uh, what I got is when we was in Irpin we met with people who live uh, nearly like big house and it, this house was shooted by tank, by Russian tank, and uh, they cook at the same at time when we met, met them, they cook some food nearly this house, so on the street. And it was like pretty cold time. It was minus five per Celsius in night, and we met them. And uh, yeah, they look like a homeless, but uh, when we start talking with them, like it's intelligent people. They work in the banks and uh, like normal jobs and have normal life before invasion. And uh, at time, like, uh, we spoke with them and we have some lunches for them, some food for them. And uh, we gave this food for them. And they don't even took all this food. They say, oh, we don't need it. Give it to people who need it more. And this, uh, what describes it, what surprises us at all. So, like, people, people who got in super difficult situation, who live without electricity, who live without, without gas, without water, they still have this hope and belief in in bright future of Ukraine, and it's it's uh, it's really huge. Vladislav, could you give us a sense of just just zooming out slightly? How has the invasion impacted sport as a whole in Ukraine? Could you tell us sort of what's it like on the ground? Are, are people still able to train? Are there matches going on? What what, what is the situation like in your country? Uh, so uh, let's start from like I think uh, good things. So. Yes, our elite athletes, uh, some parts of elite athletes, they able to train, able to compete. As you see, Ukrainian uh, flag uh, on, on in the world, so in competitions, on the world championships, our athletes show great results. And, uh, they now are super motivated and they understand how important now to be uh, in a sports arena and scream and pay uh, more, bring more attention to Ukraine. Another story is sports facilities, sports objects, what was destroyed. So uh, already, uh, officially, uh, 
nearly 140 sports objects was destroyed and uh, if like it's like statistics yeah it's terrible but you don't understand it but at example on one sport objects we object we was in chernigiv on the olympic centrum it's gagarin stadium and uh, at normal time uh, it was nearly three four thousand people who trained there professionally it's a football players it's like weightlifting boxing and another sports athletics and now this stadium fully destroyed so like it's only 50 meters of uh, rubber running rubber which survive and it's all so sports really hurts and i think we will see results of this uh, all nightmares in five six years when new generation of athletes just uh, yeah not come because they can't train now they don't have these facilities uh, but uh, but yeah but uh, another story it's a lot a lot of athletes now being on the front lines and uh, already more than 100 athletes being killed on the front lines and of course it's terrible because these athletes can't uh, can't compete can't say hello to their international friends in the sport arenas and of course it's uh, it's it's a really bad for for ukrainian sports for for those people not familiar with the sports scene in ukraine which to be honest i imagine is most people um could you just talk us through what are the sports ukrainians care about the most where is their most interest for for the public probably as you know uh, boxing uh, boxing is really strong in ukraine uh, so athletics we have really really good athletics um, arti- artistic swim and uh, swim normal swim so Mikhail Romanchuk uh, karate is also pretty decent results uh, Greco uh, like uh, wrestling all wrestling is really strong in Ukraine uh, and we have very very good tennis players in Ukraine and uh, now football team uh, won some great and show good results uh, volleyball team also show good results now in the world champs uh, yesterday they lose for Slovenia but show really good game and uh, yeah really high results uh, basketball now show also on uh, Eurobasket they show really good results so Ukrainian sports are really strong and uh, it's uh, if you not follow it, it's just time to start to follow it because uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's really strong and it's really interesting. I want to ask you about something you you said in, in our conversations before we did this interview, where you, you talked about how you believe sport is not out of politics in in reference to the suspension of Russian athletes in international sports in in in, in international sports arena. Um, could you talk us through that? Um, what did you mean by that? And what what do you want to see happen to Russian athletes? In my opinion, uh, sport uh, is out politics. It's not true. So sport is always politics. And uh, yeah, so we represent, we are athletes on a sports arena. We represent our country. We represent our flag. When we won some medals, we hear anthem of our country. So it's already some kind of politics. Uh, also, uh, IUC told about sports out of politics, but it's also not true because when we was uh, in Pyeongchang, it was my first Olympic Games. It was in bobsleigh. They make United Korea team. So they try to unite Korea. It's also politics, so you can't... Uh, yeah, it's it's always was politics. And uh, Russia used this 
uh, area. The Russia used sports for propaganda of war. And as we see in Luzhniki Stadium, when athletes go with Z letters and uh, celebrates occupation of Crimea, and uh, when they promote that uh, their government do right thing, of course, it's also politics and they do propaganda of war. But sports shouldn't be about that. Sports should be propaganda of normal, healthy life, of friendship, of peace. But Russian athletes now represent uh, rep represent uh, war and uh, they represent uh, these war crimes, what Russia do on our land. And also uh, a lot of Russian athletes, they are part of military structures. And uh, already we have information that few uh, professional athletes from Russia, basketball players, they already died as a member of Russian army. So they also involved in war uh, as, as the soldiers. And of course, at that time, uh, I don't see like any chances, uh, logistic chances, chances and uh, for Russian athletes to compete in international sports arena because it's uh, really shame uh, for for all sports when uh, people who support war compete and uh, try to be like you know in in uh, one to be to be in peace and to be in united with another athletes of course it's uh, it's it's terrible and also uh, another example of russian being in sports and being involved in sports is of course Icarus doping scandal uh, in Sochi Olympic Games when government when it was involved in doping scandal. It's first time, I think, in Olympic history when government was involved in doping scandal. And of course, it's an example how important sports for Russian propaganda. I guess my final question from me, and I think I'm sure Dom will have a couple for you as well, but my, my question is just for those Ukrainian athletes who've left Ukraine, who've, who've gone abroad, what's the support network like? How, how are they being helped to continue their training? And, and what's it like for those, for those of you, who, for those sports people who've left? To be honest, I'm really surprised. We got so much support from our sports colleagues from another country. And uh, just a few days ago, I had a conversation with association is called atlas for ukraine and they provide so much help for ukraine athletes and our uh, athletes can now train it's it's just about one country it's about germany and like uh, they have opportunity to train in the best sports facilities in the world and uh, they have really opportunity to be ready for competition in and they also provide some trainings for kids they uh, provide some opportunities to kids who refugees for Ukraine from Ukraine, and they have opportunity now to train to do other sports. Also, as I know, as I spoke with uh, figure skaters from Ukraine, they have great facilities in Estonia. They have great facilities in Paris uh, and Paris, and uh, yeah, in 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 the whole world, and whole world supports us and uh, give uh, some help. And it's uh, it's really huge, and it's also one of the reasons why our athletes now show uh, these good results. It's because we have this support and we have opportunity to train. And also uh, now I am staying in Germany in a Königsee. It's uh, nearly Bestes Garden, and we also uh, was invited to train for free in a push track, in an ice push track, and it's really 
appreciate and uh, we will be thankful forever for this support because now it's supported uh, for Ukrainian sports and Ukrainian sports uh, can survive because of this support. And just before I ask Dom if he's got anything for you, what um, uh, what's your next event? Where can we see you? Where can we see you compete next? What are you training for? Uh, I hope uh, that we will find uh, finance, uh, finance, uh, finance, and we will compete on a whole World Cup circle. Uh, it starts from Whistler in November, and uh, uh, at all it will be eight World Cups in skeleton. So. Uh, we're planning to compete all of them and world championships in Switzerland. So it's uh, how our plan for season looks like. And uh, I think next event before competition, it will be a, a huge event uh, that will be held in Italy. Also, uh, I was invited by Atlas for Ukraine to be also on this event. Uh, we will promote uh, Ukraine and we will promote to for Ukrainian, uh, well, for Germany, best Atlas to be also part of this uh, community, Atlas for Ukraine, and also to promote uh, this community to get more support for Ukrainian Atlas, for Ukrainian people. Uh, so I think also you can you can follow my media and I will post uh, all upgrades and uh, all updates on, on this. And uh, I think it will be really interesting. Uh, so, but next uh, competitions, it's World Cup in uh, Whistler, Canada. Well, thank you so much. Dom, you've been listening to all of this. Do you have any questions for our guest? I do, yeah, thanks. Uh, hi, Vladislav. Thanks so much for coming on. Really interesting to hear your, your side of it. Um, just going back to the Winter Olympics and your, and your protest there, can you just talk us through, through what, the, what the reaction was? Did anybody come and, come and talk to you afterwards and tell you that was inappropriate or don't do it again or in any way sort of... To tell you that there'd be there'd be consequences, or or what what, what reaction was there from the from the authorities there? Uh, yeah, I see. Member uh, come to us and uh, he asked some question about like what kind of like what you want to say with this uh, action, yeah, protest. So what was your idea? And uh, I talk that I just want a peace in my country. I want a peace in Ukraine. I don't want a war. Because it's 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 crazy, like in twenty first century, uh, to to see war in my country, and uh, he say, okay, you got no problems because our Olympic values they also represent the same. So we also fight for a peace. We want a peace in whole world, and it's our. Uh, that's why we do these sports, and this this why like uh, Olympic values are so important for us. And they say no any like disqualifications or. Any uh, so everything is okay, and we we'll support you. And did you get any reaction from any Russian athletes, or have you? Do you have any friendships or any any relationships with with uh, Russian athletes at all? You see them round round the circuits. Uh, it's uh, this Russian athlete's reaction uh, surprised me, and uh, I wasn't like friends with them, but uh, we was a, we we compete on uh, the same tracks on the same competition with them for five, six, seven years. And uh, when full invasion starts, uh, I wait for some uh, humanity and I wait for some questions. Uh, for example, like, how are you? Or are you okay? Are you alive? Uh, but uh, nobody write me any messages. Uh, in other hand, some uh, bobsleigh youth athletes from Russia, they write me messages like they treat me and they wishing a bomb in my house and uh, things like that. So 
I was really, really surprised, and uh, I expect some humanity, but uh, I got uh, some treats and uh, bad stuff. And also, uh, after uh, decision of suspension uh, Russian by Russian athletes from bobsled and skeleton sports, what we got in uh, Congress, uh, I got, uh, I, I saw some stories in Instagram of uh, Russian athletes where they write that they were suspended because they are super strong and because of your, but no any word uh, they don't understand that the suspension is because they start war in, in, in Ukraine and uh, it looks like they're really brainwashed and for me uh, in this uh, yeah so for me it's super surprisingly because athletes in Russia it's people who travel around the world and if some like common Russian they wasn't uh, any time like in, in other country Okay, they can like believe in this uh, propaganda of Russia. I understand it, but athletes they are traveling all around the world and they see and they uh, know me as Ukrainian. They know uh, another like uh, people from another countries and they see how they live and they see uh, like how they train, uh, how like they li- like yeah they see their life and it's that perspective when they still promote war. For me, they guilty and they guilty two times more than or three times more than common Russian. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time today, Vladislav. Is there anything you haven't spoken about that you would want our listeners to understand or know? Anything that we haven't asked you that you think you you think we should have done? Uh, yeah, so I can tell a little bit more work of our foundation. So what I proud, uh, we start to do some charity trainings for kids in Ukraine. In uh, the occupied territories, uh, we try to provide some uh, trainings and uh, knowledge about sports for kids. And it's really nice uh, to see uh, kids uh, when they smile. And uh, it's really nice that we can bring some happiness through the sports and uh, show that sports can be like, can unite people. And uh, that's nice that sports can promote something like good even in that dark times when uh, kids going through hell and like they see rockets and they see occupiers and now they can smile through the sports and of course it's it's really nice so uh, support ukrainian sports follow ukrainian sports and uh, together uh, we will win this war and thank you so much for your uh, support thank you for all what you're doing and thank you for sharing our stories here well, thank you very much for coming on and thank you and good luck for your, for your next competition. Um, Dom Nichols, can I just come back to you finally for your, for your final thoughts? What should um, our listeners be thinking of into the days ahead? Well, I think we should keep our eyes on the northeast of the country around Kharkiv to see if that, if that pushback there, that counteroffensive was taking advantage of perceived, well, an apparent weak Russian line or if it was part of a much broader push up there. Um, link that also to there were explosions last night in the city of Belgrade, about 60 k's inside Russia. Power distribution centre there went up in smoke and it, it cut power and water supply to to the Russian residents of that city. Uh, you know, I just wonder if that is similar to the strikes we saw in Crimea as part of the shaping for the, the Kherson offensive. I wonder if, if there is a more a more coherent but effort operation in the Kharkiv area, whether or not that's that's something that... Um, 
uh, that we'll be seeing more of. So, yeah, my, I'm still jury's out in my in my head as to whether or not the the Kharkiv uh, push has been a, a sort of local local counter attack, or if they're trying to knit it together into a bigger and broader counter offensive. So, um, so yeah, keep keep your eyes on well both Kurzon and uh, and up in the up in the north. But I think that the north at the moment is posing more questions. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.